Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Conan Shame Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Rourke. Guys, I got a great episode for you today. Today's episode is brought to you exclusively by the fine, fine folks at Siva Animal Health. Guys, Siva, uh, the maker of Adaptil, Feel Away, Vectra, the Duxo Dermatology family, and their new cardiac drug, Cardalis, which is going to be a very big topic of conversation in the vet world uh, very soon as it rolls out to the world. They, uh, they made it possible for us to bring in two, not one, two fantastic experts on parasitology to talk with me about Lyme disease. I have Dr. Lindsay Starkey, who uh, is absolutely incredible. She uh, she is at Auburn University, and I have Dr. Brian Harris, who is equally fantastic, and he is a professor at Kansas State University, both in the College of Veterinary Medicine at their respective universities. Guys, we talk about what to do with the positive Lyme uh, result. We talk about uh, when to reach for the doxycycline and when not to. We talk about antibiotic stewardship. We talk about mistakes that people make. We talk about some client communication and compliance stuff. This really is an excellent episode. So without further ado, let's get into it. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to Cone of shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome, uh, welcome, welcome, guys! I'm so glad uh, I have two guests today, uh, both fan freaking tastic people and uh, people I'm super glad to know. I have a Dr. Lindsay Starkey from Auburn University's College of Veterinary Medicine. I have Dr. Brian Heron from Kansas State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, Lindsay and I, we got to know each other in New Orleans in the before times at the American Heartworm Society and you were a lecturer there and you were wonderful and I am so glad honestly ever since I saw you speak there I have wanted to have you on the podcast and I'm super glad that we got to make it happen uh Brian you were also there I think we met there uh but I did not get to see you speak until recently uh in the virtual world so uh guys thank you both for being here and you guys have known each other for a long time correct yeah, Brian and I go way back to our Oklahoma State days where he was a vet student and I was a, a budding TA grad student. And then we overlapped in grad school together doing crazy tick stuff. So Dude, tell me. Um, so, OK, my one of my technicians got to go to tick camp. Have you guys are you involved in tick camp? There's a lot of head nodding. Tell me. Tell me just before we get into this. Tell me. Tell me about tick camp. She was she was thrilled. I heard about tick camp for like three weeks. Yeah, I, we we hosted a tick camp up here at Kansas State and uh, just getting to look at the ticks, getting to go out in the field and trap them, getting that idea of ticks move quickly. Uh, you're you're walking and, and you think you don't see ticks and we say, stand here for just a second. Now look around. Okay, you see that blade of grass? There's a tick on it. And once your eyes focus on that, you look around and you realize you're surrounded. You're trapped. And there's ticks everywhere. And that's th the stuff of nightmares. Yeah. yeah. A few of the people who came to tick camp, they left and were like, "That was horrific. That was no. That was no longer challenged by choice. Like that was too scary. And I, I'm never coming back again. And and it's just too much. 
one star would not recommend. <laughs> no, ja- Jamie was on the other end of the spectrum. Like she, she was that person who found uh, like the keto diet, and they tell everybody like that was her. Except instead of keto diet, it was Dick Camp. Um, so. <laughs> So great. I love that you do that. Let's um let's talk tick stuff. I've got a game I like to play and I want to I want to play with you guys. And it's called How Do You Treat That? So um uh, I um I have been in the clinic and I got this dog in and it is a four-year-old mixed breed dog. Uh and I'm running uh just a wellness visit on this dog and I run my 4DX test. And this dog is coming up positive for Lyme disease. It is asymptomatic. The owner hasn't said anything. Um, how do you treat that? Like when you see the you see the blue dot come up, where are your thoughts? Where do where do they go from here? My first thoughts where I'm at geographically and honestly where Brian's at geographically are where have you been? <laughs> because <laughs> that blue spot is not common in our geographies, but it's incredibly common in some other parts of the U.S. And so that would, knowing, like, getting geography out of the way, right? But that can be an incredibly right. normal spot to see in some regions. Um, yeah. So so feathering out that travel history is the first thing, um, if it's not something that's endemic to your area. It, okay, so, so, I'm, so I'm in South Carolina. I, uh, I practiced for years in Maryland. And in Maryland, I saw a lot of Lyme disease. In South Carolina, I see a lot less. If I go and talk to this guy and say, hey, you know, where have you been? If if a lot of times I've found that they're sort of noncommittal and they're like, I don't, you know, I don't know. He kind of, I'm not exactly sure where he came from, things like that. Does that temper how you approach this? If you're in an endemic area, do you, are you more aggressive in your treatment or interpretation? How does that, does that factor into what I do? I think that history is important and kind of, deciding the the big relevance to the spot and we have to step back and say that test is an antibody test and so we're documenting exposure to the pathogen and that's why when you said it's not clinically ill right now we you know we it, it may never be and so you know help having a little bit of idea of where it's been lets us know what its risk of exposure was or you know sure. th- these tests are great but there, there are some errors, right? And, and so that helps you kind of determine, do I want to take those next diagnostic steps? Cause I think this is a real, real issue, or maybe do I just want to rerun this test to see if I just got a, a quick error, uh, in a, in a test. Well, so, okay, it's cool. Let's just, let's just start there and let's start down this path together. So I'm looking at this thing. How do you, how do you make that, de- that determination of, let's let's just run this again and and see if it comes up positive versus just going forward is that is that is that mostly based on the frequency with which you see it are there are there factors in your mind uh, i mean i think for me most of the time we're talking high 90s in specificity and sensitivity right brian so i'm gonna have faith that this is probably a, a true you know this dog had borrelia in its system at some point in time because we know that spot is not going to light up for some other reason right that the snap in particular does not detect vaccinal antibodies or anything like that um 
Well, I'm going to at least take my first step the same regardless, right? Like I'm going to ask, like, have you been somewhere or is this something that may be embarking upon you there in South Carolina, Andy? And I truly think it is, you know, yeah. encroaching on you maybe faster than it's encroaching on me down here in Alabama. But it's definitely something that is moving around. And the fact that we can see that with our wellness screens, I think is a really important thing that we continue screening for. But to the ACBIM guidelines, any dog testing antibody positive, whether it's on a SNAP or any antibody test for Lyme, it's warranted that we evaluate them for protein in their urine. That is a 100%. All of those experts, those expert internists on this disease have agreed that that's the first step that we all need to be taking. And what we do beyond that, there was no agreeance necessarily on what they thought should or shouldn't be done. But yeah, definitely evaluate protein in the urine. Okay, so what am I looking for there? So what, just walk me through the clinical significance. So I, I test this, I, I get a positive result. Um, I'm I'm looking for protein in the urine. Obviously, I'm I'm looking for you know nephritis things like 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 that. But um, how, is that all that I'm looking for? Is it like hey, this is a protein? I'm worried about Lyme nephritis, or is this uh, I don't see protein? Uh, and we're the, like, are are there shades of gray? Or is there nuance to this to this urinalysis that I'm looking at? Yeah, I, I think some of the issues in when we're talking about the damage to the kidneys is it's really not the bacteria that's in there Swiss cheesing through the kidneys. Um, it's antigen antibody complexes depositing down there and doing damage to the glomeruli. And so when we have protein in the urine, we've just created that leaky event because of the antigen antibody complexes. And I think the consensus in having that as a next step is because uh, it's something that's easy and practical to do when we're trying to be thoughtful about how we're using doxycycline or who needs to be treated because uh, you can send those owners home with cups so they can collect urine or you can collect some there quick you know dipstick as a super easy first step, if if the protein levels are higher than normal on dipstick, then you may want to look at that um, protein-creatinine ratio. But I think the whole reasoning behind having that as the second step is uh, it's, it's thoughtful. And that's where we're going to see some of the major damage in dogs. And it's not supremely cost- prohibitive mm-hmm. or intensive to uh, collect those samples as well. So it's just a, an easy next step in, in our decision tree. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about, about sort of um, antibiotic stewardship responsibility, things like that. Do you go off of, so do you go off of the protein in the urine? If say I've got the Lyme uh, test, I've got, um, I've got some uh, elevated urine uh, or protein in the urine, the, the protein creatinine ratio is a little bit high, something like that. Uh, at that point, are you comfortable saying, all right, this is a, what I would consider to be a symptomatic dog that warrants treatment and let's go forward. Or, or are you going uh, deeper or further? Are there other considerations? Yeah, for me, it's, you know, if you're in a Lyme endemic area, you have that spot and you've got, you know, renal parameters that would be indicative, you can you can tie all that together and say, yeah, I think we're, this warrants a course of antibiotics. But if this is, you know, truly like a one-off and you're like, man, this is a, a weird diagnostic to see in my area. We don't have a travel history that fits. Um, we do clearly have something going on with the kidneys. You can explore that further, right? Because there's multiple causes for proteinuria, Lyme being one of them. And you do have mm-hmm. this antibody indication that Lyme is or was in the system, right? And so that still needs to remain on your differential list. But I think, it, you know, 
you can definitely try to rule in or rule out other causes of proteinuria at the same time. Are there um are there cases where you where you step back and say, I'm going to watch this. I'm going to monitor. We're going to we're going to recheck urine in the future and sort of. Uh, it's, let's just say that that I get a, a positive Lyme test and, and I don't see protein in the urine. Uh, are you going to Are you rechecking that? Are you going to say I don't see anything? Let's do a uh, empiric treatment, things like that. And again, I, I I know that there's strong feelings, I guess, again about that when we talk about antibiotic stewardship. But I'm just just sort of putting out to 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 further the question. Yeah. Well, I guess what I'm really what I'm trying to get around in all of this is where are the triggers that make me shift to a more aggressive approach to this versus a wait and see approach? And what does a wait and see approach look like? Yeah, this is something that I get into, you know, probably every year is a clinic will contact me and say, hey, you know, I have seen a really horrible case of glomerulonephritis. So anytime I see antibody positive, I go ahead and treat. And, but my colleague uh, doesn't treat just because of that blue spot. Um, but they've just never seen these you know, horrific cases I, that I never want to see again. And which one of us is correct? And I say, yeah. oh, you know, you have a lot of clinical experience there. And if that's something that you never want to see again, then that may be why you're more aggressive. And in that case, what I want to pitch is your antibiotic stewardship starts way earlier because at that point, your antibiotic stewardship is recommending really high quality year-round tick prevention and Lyme vaccines in, in areas where it's warranted so that you see less of those positive spots. So you maybe feel bolder to treat just on the antibody spot because of your experiences. Okay. That's that's really neat. Um, so I, I love the, this sort of holistic approach of you can be more aggressive in treating these types of cases if you're doing the legwork of building a good preventive program out in front of it, because then you're not seeing Lyme positive 40X tests all day and you're just writing antibiotic scripts out the door, which, you know, those are the, and you see that you see, you see those practices. And I think people are, I love veterinarians. I, there, there are people, I believe that they're generally trying to do what's right and what is best. And, you know, and, and our understanding of, of antibiotic stewardship has changed. And so, but you, you do see those, those practices of them going out the door. Brian, I think, I think your point also is really true. And I can't, it's escaping me, the cognitive bias that we have towards, I had a negative experience and I saw it and now I don't care what your data says. You know, I've seen this and we see it with any drug. You know, I have had, um, I had this, I had a terrible experience with just a random, I'm not going to say what drug it was, but it was just, it was a drug that vets use all the time for, you know, just the most benign thing. And I had this one dog that had a reaction to this drug and I sweat every time I think about prescribing it. You know what I mean? And, and it's like, I, I know it's a safe drug. And we know every drug has side effects and potential for side effects. And so when you see those people who have had those cases, I, I remember I had, a, um, I had a dog named Captain America that came in years ago. And Captain America had lost like 15, 20 pounds. And the owners were like, we don't know. He just, he hasn't been eating. And that was a Lyme nephritis dog. And I like that is the dog in my head when I think about Lyme disease. And I it pushes me to be a bit more aggressive because I'm like that. I put that dog to sleep. Ultimately, you just because it was just it was too little too late 
by the by the time they came in. And so I know that I have this push towards being probably overly assertive because of that experience that I've had. Yeah. And that's that's what we don't know when we get these diagnoses. Right. Andy, it's does this dog still have this pathogen in the system? Is there anything even there worth treating? You know, we have this this renal change. Right. And I think most would agree if you've got the antibody and you've got renal markers, you know, go ahead and treat. There's something that may be worth treating there. But in that dog that has the normal protein value, right? The experts still don't agree here. Some would still say treat, right? Based on antibody mm-hmm. alone. And some say maybe we monitor. And that looks like, you know, this is a healthy four-year-old mixed breed dog in this case, right? Well, most owners might balk at doing blood work every six months in a juvenile dog that's seemingly healthy. But now we we have something to say, hey, I really want to monitor this dog more closely because of this blue spot we've had in the past. And I want to check that urine and I want to make sure everything's still going well so that something like Lyme nephritis doesn't creep up on us. And we can, you know, adjust our therapy at that point in time if there is some indication that comes along that says, hey, maybe this is turning into something. If, if you're practicing in the South... Uh, how aware are you of Lyme disease creeping south? I guess is what I'm asking. So we're in South Carolina. You said Alabama. At wh- I, where I'm trying to go with this is as I sort of ask you how aware of, uh, of this are you? Uh, we don't currently, we have a Lyme vaccine. We mostly do it for people who go up north to winter, you know, or to go up north for over the summer uh, and they come down south to winter. But it's it's not part of our core wellness protocols. At some point, if the frequency of disease that we see increases, we're going to reevaluate that. Is that something that you see happening in more and more practices? Is that something that people need to be kind of uh, have on their radar? Yeah, I, I think when we're talking to clinics or veterinarians that maybe feel like they're on the fringe edge, so North Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky is kind of getting included in that, the, the big steps there are <clears> – <throat> You know, the Companion Animal Parasite Council, CAPC, they put out forecast maps, so you can take a look at that. They have data where you can look at your county. You can click on the county and see what percent of dogs are testing positive in your county and say, well, that's not my clinic. So that's the second step is, are you routinely screening in your clinic to kind of figure out what's going on? The best way to not have a disease is to not look for it. And so if you feel like you're in a fringe area, you know, start that screening and decide how many animals you think are exposed. And then when we're talking about building uh, around a, a way to incorporate the Lyme vaccine for more of our clients potentially, it's, it's like you said, Dr. Rourke, you, you want to start with the at-risk people. And so for your clinic, it's those that travel to mm-hmm. endemic areas for the summer. And this is a risk-based vaccine. And, and a lot of people think risk is like geographic risk only, but we also take lifestyle into account. And so if you thought it was creeping down into your neck of the woods, then you may want to start asking more lifestyle questions of, do you go hiking, hunting, camping? Are you outdoors a lot? Do you see ticks? Are you happy with your tick control? To figure out who might benefit from the vaccine first. And then, you know, over the next couple of years, you might say, oh man, I'm seeing more and more positives. And that's maybe pushing me to offer the vaccine and really push for tick control for more of my clients. And so uh, the the only way, the only issue with Lyme really is you have to have a plan beforehand. 
both in the diagnostic workflow of what you're going to do and how you're going to implement the vaccines in your clinic as it continues to spread. And so what I usually just encourage is, you know, if you're not thinking about it right now, start maybe to think about it. And maybe you look and you evaluate and say, you know what, we had, we didn't see a single positive all year long. Okay. Right. Then that's telling you some information, but don't wait until it's kind of too late, right? The vaccine has to be on board beforehand. The tick control has to be on beforehand. Yeah. And, and people will often ask me, like, what's the tipping point, right? I think Brian was kind of getting to this, like, how bad does that CAPC percentage number need to be in your county before right. you like look at it and you're like, all right, maybe I should do something. And zero, right? Like, we want to keep the number as low as possible. So we really, at least at a minimum, you've got to implement a strong tick control program. And truly, when we're talking about this pathogen and the vector for this pathogen, this is this tick is active in seasons where our clients and maybe even us in the practice aren't thinking about or pushing as strongly tick control. Exodes like it when it's a little more cool. Like it's our wintertime tick here in Alabama. It's active all throughout the winter months. As you move further north, obviously you're going to get some snowpack and some freezing temperatures and this tick's going to be like, nah, I'm not happy today. But any day above 40-ish is an okay day for this tick, but that's not a day that your clients are like, Oh, shoot, I better make sure I've got my tick control on board, right? So with this one specifically, we need to make sure that people are aware that maybe the transmission season for this pathogen in particular is a little off from what we classically talk about being tick season. Yeah, I I can say at least least for us uh, in, in South Carolina, the driver for flea and tick control is 100% on fleas. You know, like that is that is the big driver that I see. That is what patients come into the clinic for. You know, the pet owners are like he's scratching. He's got fleas. He's got things like that. And so I think that fleas get a disproportionate amount of the attention. And I'm just curious if if you see that other places. I remember, you know, practicing further up north. We paid a lot more attention to ticks. I think that if you live in an area where people are concerned about getting Lyme disease, I think that helps have that conversation and really impress on people. But I'm curious as to your thoughts. I think um, one of the concepts that I would chat about for veterinarians across the country, right, is determining what your foundational parasites are, where it's what do you have to control to be successful in your practice at all. And so if I say, Dr. Rourke, you can't, you can't control fleas and you can't control heart, heartworm, you say, man, in South Carolina, I'm doing a pretty terrible job, right? Um, right. Because you got to you to keep your pets healthy and have any dogs coming back in at all. You've got to keep fleas off of them and got to keep them heartworm free. And then you want to kind of, oh, well, it's good that you know the flea preventives also get ticks, and it's great that some of our heartworm preventives also get some intestinal parasites. So you're building kind of a comprehensive parasite control. But there's places in the Northeast, right, where their foundational parasite uh, would be Exodes scapularis in controlling Lyme disease, and so it definitely does vary um, by region. Where you're building it, you're building your whole parasite control program on a few that you just have. There's there's no way around it. You have to control these parasites, and then hoping to pick up some other things just to make a nice, well-rounded parasite control program. I like the term foundational parasites. I've I've never heard that before, but I, I now that you say that, I go, oh yeah, I like that. That clicks for me as far as I know exactly what we're talking about. That's a Dr. Mike Dryden uh, term out of K State. Let's give him credit for that one. I love that guy. 
Yeah, he's great. He, he's he's certifiably awesome. Um, when you talk about comprehensive parasite control, uh, as you guys know, we have seen an explosion in over-the-counter uh, parasite controls in the last probably wait, five years. Uh, I think has been has been pretty pretty steep growth. How do you talk to pet owners about that? And what are your feelings about that? You know, are there, yeah, I, I guess sort of how, how do I approach that? Is it, is it, is it a hundred percent we need to, what they're getting over the counter is, is not going to be effective. It's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be um, shielding of their pets or, or is there some give and take there or is there give that and take with, 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 with vaccination? I, yeah. I, let's, let's talk about that. There are a lot of options out there. And to, to Brian's point in the last little segment is, you know, your foundational parasite, the bonuses, well, now we've got products that cover that, cover it well, and cover a lot of other stuff really well, too. And it's important to know that those are only going to come from veterinary practice right now. Those aren't available out in the world. But there are some decent options available in the OTC market for certain things. But I mm-hmm. think we have to be very careful because I think our clients, they've been doing that and they've been doing it for years and they've not noticed an issue, right? And they don't want to fix what's not broken, but it might be broken and maybe we're not doing our due diligence at figuring out if it really is working for them, right? Like the practice that never does a wellness screen for tick-borne infections and the client's been using some OTC product that maybe doesn't even have to control in it, right? Like something could have happened and just flown under our radar. So I think there's some decent options out there, but truly right now, the the best, most efficacious broad spectrum things are going to come from your hands to them. And to follow up with that, I think there are a lot of, there's a lot of branding that uh, our clients recognize. And so they'll say, I want product X. And maybe that's not one you carry or, or want to have. And you say, actually, what I'm hearing is you want good quality flea and tick control and you want it in this formulation. And I can say, I have good quality flea and tick control in the formulation that you think uh, works best for you. And and this is what I would recommend. And so trying to make sure it's kind of the, what kind of Coke do you want? Oh, a Dr. Pepper, that name branding where they may just be looking for high quality flea and tick control in a certain formulation, whether it be oral or topical, whatever. And your clinic may have something that fits that need. They just don't know because right, they've they've been name branded or, or whatever. They've they've tried something before. So I think rephrasing some of that may may be able to help some of those issues as well. Well, I want to go back to the point that you made earlier, Brian, about, you know, what are you actually seeing, assuming that you're measuring in the clinic, meaning I don't know how you have this conversation if you're not screening for, you know, for the disease. If it's in your area and you're not looking at it, it, that makes it really hard to come back and someone says, well, I use this stuff I got at the grocery store. And if I can say, I have a lot of clients who use that and their pets ended up with Lyme disease, that puts me conversationally in a much stronger position uh, than, than anything I think I can, I can pull out as far as data and, and show to them. So I just sort of, as I'm sort of processing this, I don't, I don't know that there's a better response than I've seen, I've seen clients use this and I've, I've seen them regret it. And these are the products that I can say to you, I feel very confident that you're going to be happier. You're going to be protected. Yeah. You're, you're spot on with making things 
very temporal and and local in saying, you know, this is happening here. Uh, I think a lot of people say, yeah, sure, there's ticks everywhere, Dr. Work, but not here, right? And you say, whoa, no. Like, we have ticks, we see tick-borne diseases. And so, letting them know that uh, and making it real helps as a, a motivator for that those compliance issues where we say, is there really a need for 12 months out of the year? Come on. And we say, yes, we see ticks every year of the month. Yeah. Well, it goes back to the difference in looking at a pet owner and saying, you know, we live in an area where point uh, 0.2% of dogs are heartworm positive versus saying, I saw a dog with heartworm disease yesterday, which unfortunately is true. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I hate it, but yeah, I saw one yesterday. And so that type of that type of anecdotal sharing it, it does it does resonate with people because you can say this is in our area this is what i have seen and 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 what i and i can tell you the story of it what are some of the so we we talked just a couple months back at the fight lime event um if you guys were going to give a quick overview update anything that general practitioners uh should know about lyme disease any updates in the research on lyme disease anything that's coming in treatment of of the conditions things like that are there reminders pearls uh updates things like that that you think veterinarians would benefit from knowing yeah the, the first one and it's common sense and so some of your listeners you all may laugh at me for saying this but anytime you can prevent the transmission event, meaning in this case, we're talking about preventing that tick from ever biting a dog, right? Like you will stop that pathogen from getting in and potential disease from developing. And and we do have options to actually do that, right? Like sometimes we have options that come in after the fact. Think about like your heartworm preventants, right? We're actually killing any L3 and L4 larvae that have been acquired following that mosquito bite that happened, you know, yesterday or three weeks ago. But if we can stop that mosquito from ever biting, if we can stop that tick from ever feeding, uh, if we can stop that flea from ever feeding, we can stop flea allergy dermatitis. We can block the transmission of Lyme disease. We can block the transmission of heartworm. And so using or having products in our repertoire that work at that aspect of the life cycle in conjunction with these other aspects of the life cycle is incredibly helpful. Great. Well, Lindsay and Brian, thank thank you both for being here so much. Um, where can people find the two of you online and what are your favorite, uh, what are your favorite parasite uh, Lyme disease resources that are out there that, that people might want to grab a, a hold of? I, I think I'll start with saying for, for Lyme disease practitioners, uh, if, if you're in endemic areas, uh, you should take a look at the ACVIM consensus statement. I think it's uh, really thoughtful and it helps it helps show how complicated this all is because the experts didn't even agree on on what to do next, but it gives you lots of options and sides so that you can determine maybe what's best for your practice um, in in the cases you're seeing and, and how to manage them. So I really like the ACVIM consensus for managing the, the clinical disease. When you're trying to figure out where, uh, where your clinic sits in the risk level, um, I'm a big fan of the CAPC map, so capcvet.org. And that's a great way to look at your county. You can look at the other tick-borne diseases there, so Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, and Heartworm, and get a feel for you know, 
what's going on in your in your area. Again, making it timely and local so that you can provide that information directly to your clients. Hey, we see cases in this county. What's what's your what's your tolerance? What's your tolerance for for fleas? If it's zero, we got to activate on this. What's your tolerance right. for ticks? If it's zero, we got to activate on this. Um, and so both of those can be really great resources for in clinic for sure. Yeah. It's, I, I love you use that, that wording. I've had, a, I've had a couple of, of people I've worked with recently who, who asked the clients that question. They use that wording as what is your tolerance for blank? And it's really interesting to kind of see clients sit back and process that, you know, and sort of say, how, what is my tolerance for fleas? Like, am I okay <laughs> to have them a little bit? Like, and just, it is, it is, re- it's just, it's just been interesting, but it's, it, you use that wording and I go, I am hearing that wording more often uh, with consultants and people working in the exam room. And it's just been kind of an interesting thought experiment. Lindsay, where can people find you and what are your favorite goodies out on the internet? Well, Brian stole my favorite goodies because um, I use Capsi all the time um, and kind of look for some of those shifts. And one nice thing that came out of that Fight Lime event was some, you know, Siva is providing some resources for people to use in practice too. And so they can reach out to their local Siva rep and work on getting those for them. That would be the only addition. But email is the most efficient and easiest way to try to get a hold of me. And it's just my name at auburn.edu. So lindsay.starkey at auburn.edu. I never answer a phone call from a number I don't recognize anymore. (laughs) No worries. Awesome. All right, guys. Thanks again for being here. Really appreciate your time. Guys, uh, we'll see you all next week. And that is our episode. Thanks again to the uh, to our friends at Siva Animal Health for making this episode possible. Uh, it wouldn't exist without them. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you got a lot out of it. Thanks again to Lindsay and Brian. Guys, if you enjoy the podcast, it means the world to me to hear it. Let me know. Uh, you can leave us an honest review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, feel free to share the episode with your friends. This is great staff meeting content because, hey, guys, it is tick season. And we want our staff to be up on the what's at what's. And so we can be like, hey, guys, check this out. And we're going to talk about it at our staff meeting. So anyway, just throwing that out there. uh, You got plenty of ideas for your staff meeting. I don't mean to step on your toes. I feel like I overstepped there. And I'm sorry. I just want to walk that back and say it's just something to think about. I I don't want to, you know, I mean, you do you. But it's a thing that could be done. Anyway, that's enough of that. You guys take care. Be well. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.